couple of the ideas in verse 2 this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, and according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I spent a lot of time last week just pounding the reality of what an apostle is, of what an apostle does, and that they are not the large and in charge bosses of the church, but rather the largest servants to the church. They've been given authority to speak the word of Christ, the teaching of Christ by the Spirit of God, and in doing so, the Spirit of God in us <coughs> permits us to be subject to that through, in our humility, <clears throat> in our lives, and so forth. And one of the reasons that I emphasize that is because we live in a day and age where leadership is often seen as oppressive and bossy. But leadership is humble and quiet. Leadership is a servant first. We also looked at Peter throughout the New Testament narratives. We saw how Peter, though he was full of zeal, was misguided, misunderstood almost everything, acted on impulse rather than wise um, and prudent <laughs> thought. And of all the disciples, he would have been one that the public would have seen to be the closest to Christ, etc. Although we know that the relationship that Jesus had with John was much different. Peter would have sort of, and did, stand out as the spokesperson for the disciples. He was the spokesman. He spoke for them. He spoke up for them. He talked over them. And he always denied anything that um, would seem like he would fail. But yet he also doubted himself. He doubted the words of the Lord. He said, it is not so. You do not have to die. He even asked the Lord, is it me? Am I going to betray you? Then I would never, ever, ever abandon you. And then lo and behold, what happens? You know, he denies Christ three times. But he was restored. He was restored. And he was restored because he belonged to Christ. And then Christ told him to feed my sheep. Not once, not twice, but three times. Once for every time that Peter denied Christ, Christ restored him. So the context then, as we learned last week, is that there were a lot of Jewish people, ethnically, who had come to believe in the gospel of grace, sovereign and free, come to believe in the person of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And it cost them. It cost them their livelihood. It cost them their freedom. It cost them their voice. It cost them their family. It cost them their property. And so they were just spread out. They were just cast out into the world to go and live and like nomads again. And Peter is writing to them this letter to encourage them in the faith. And what we see oftentimes, especially with Paul's writing, Peter is no different, is that the introduction to these letters, these introductory statements, are ways of really establishing almost like an outline or a reflecting point or an anchor or tether to the rest of everything that's going to be said. 
And so you'll see us going back to chapter 1, verse 2, throughout the reading and the teaching of this letter. And when we get to verse 3, there's so much there. There's just this doxology, and we, we closed with that last week. And Peter's primary point is to give hope. To give hope, and then because of that hope, to give solid and practical instructions to these Christians who for every logical and rational thing that they know should run for their lives and escape this Christianity. You ever felt that way? Yeah, we have. And so what I'm going to do today is a little bit different. I've preached this letter many times before. I'm sure that if you look on the church website, I've probably preached it in my tenure here over 12 years. But it's going to be a little different. Matter of fact, I don't think I have, but it's going to be a little different. It's going to be a little slower. It's going to be a little more focused because Peter is writing Jewish people who are Christians. Remember, they're not practicing Judaism any longer. There's no marrying of Jewish theological traditions into Christian teaching. One points to the other, and the application is sovereign grace, not works and laws and precepts and washings and ceremonies and certain types of voices and certain types of language and certain types of clothes and certain types of movies and certain types of chicken. And so Peter establishes by the Spirit of God this hope and then this action, this attitude. There's always some, there's a lot of deep, almost self-preaching in this text. You'll see it as we get started over the next few weeks. But what I'm going to do is to give the application that I ran out of time for last week about the sovereignty of God and the foreknowledge of God the Father, what it means for you in a practical sense, And then we're going to step into how that sovereignty, how the foreknowledge of God applies to your sanctification and reestablish what the Old Testament and the New Testament would teach us about sanctification. And then we're going to make application there because I don't want you to be lost when Peter begins to make application. So, for example, in verse 13, look there real quick as sort of like a foreshadowing of months to come. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. See, this is what he's assuming. You will be preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So see, this hope that is tied and tethered to the blood of Christ, that is tied and tethered to the promises of God, that is tied and tethered to the power of God and His sovereignty, His electing love, is the only place where we can find hope. Then he says in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which was what? The precepts of religion in Judaism. The promise of the coming Messiah misunderstood and misinterpreted. But as he who called you is holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated, you also be holy, set apart, sanctified, consecrated in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were transformed from the feudal ways of inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, etc. And so I say that to just just recapitulate 
what I've been saying for a while, and that is that, yes, there are deep theologies that make great differences in our lives. Those differences are fleshed out in the way we live. Not in the strict adherence to obedient standards that the culture would give us, but in the application of the depths of what God's love is for us. And I'm going to re-establish a couple of those points this week because I know it was a lot last week to go through all of that. And so part one of today's sermon, there's three parts, 12 subparts, doing this for Mike, <laughs> and about 30 different <laughs> commentaries. So get your outline ready. I have no idea how it's going to sound in the end. But according to the foreknowledge of the Father, foreknowledge, God's not just omniscience, but God's purposes, God's will, God's desire, God purpose all things. It's not that God knows something will happen. God has purposed it to be. It's an active relational knowledge, implying, moreover, a relationship with those that he knows intimately. I say it this way, that God loved me before I was, not because of me, but in spite of me, because of him. Someone asked for clarification last week after the sermon online. Could you please help me deal with the idea of election? And, I, and listen, I have an educated brain in the context of that theology, and I could have answered that in 15 different ways. But I said it this way, and I say this often, not as often as I should, but sometimes just to bother my wife, I say, you know why I love you? And she knows what I'm going to say. Yes, because I choose to. No matter what, I choose to. Today, I choose to love you. I don't make that don't make look good. There's a lot of work in that. Sometimes I say it through gritted teeth. God chooses to love you. God elected to love you in Christ. And he did so. It's not how he feels toward you. It's what he has done for you. And that's what love always is. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength, and shoes, then we will do that love. That love is actively energized and obvious through our love for each other. Actively. Not a feeling. Love is never a feeling. That's called enmeshment. If you want to talk about that psychologically, I'm loved too. But biblically, love is always what we do, 1,000% of the time, never how we feel. And then that emotion comes with the love of action. An emotion comes with the reminder of the grace of God. But it is not a foundation upon which we stand. Because we could be tired, hungry, or just selfish and change the way we feel about someone. According to the foreknowledge of God, this is the relationship he has with his people. The scriptural basis for this, the theological basis for this, and I'm going to unpack some of this in a minute a little bit deeper, but Jeremiah, I said it last week, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God has intimate knowledge of his people. And who's he talking to? He's talking to Jeremiah. Before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb of the mother that I created, I knew you. See, that, 
Don't know about you, but that goes a long ways for me. That carries me to a great place. The psalmist says it this way, your, your eye saw my unformed substance. And I mean, I'm a dreamer. And I like to think about unseen things. And I try to see them. A thousand years ago, I'd probably be an opium, an opium addict or something. You know, weird, trying to find a psychedelic way into it. And I've had people say, hey, Tippins, if you drink this, you'll see God. I'm like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'd rather not. I've also heard people seeing the devil. You know, <laughs> I don't want those experiences. I can see God just fine through the pages of the scriptures. But there's something in me that I, I like that stuff. I like to ponder the unseen. I love it. I love to measure in my mind the immeasurable. And some people are like, ah, just give me the list. No, I don't want the list. I, don't, I want to talk about, is there even paper to put it on? <laughs> What's paper? What does it mean to put anything on? Is anything even on? <laughs> yes. It's so weird. The New Testament undergirds these same things about the intimate knowledge of Christ, I mean, of God with his people, the infant knowledge of Christ for his people. Romans 8 explores the idea that God foreknew, and he foreknew, he also predestined, and those he predestined, etc. This is not an insight into the future. This is an active choice that is love. This is what the scripture teaches us. Ephesians 1, Pastor Trey has talked about this several times already this, in the last six months or so. We see that believers are cho chosen in Christ before the creation of the cosmos. God said, let there be light in order for his people and his electing love to manifest before his people. When we talk about the glory of God, that literally means being able to see God for who he really is. There has to be someone and something to see it. But here's the practical implications that I did not get to last week. And there are six of them, maybe. What does this electing love, what does this sovereignty, what does this foreknowledge of God do for us? A lot of things. You have to break it down. You have to, you have to put an end to a list. Somebody like me, when I start stuff like this, it's usually 50 to 60 things, and I break it down to like 30 things, and I say, well, I can combine about 15 of these things, and that's still too much, cut it in half. So that's really how I do it, and I have to pick and choose. All right, this is this one, this one, and this one. Do I want grits or bacon? I mean, so this is not exhaustive. This is not illuminating. This is not God the Holy Spirit giving you everything that you need to know. And some of these things may not even resonate with you, but I'll tell you this, some of them will. The implications for us as believers, understanding God's foreknowledge, is that it deepens our faith in God's sovereignty. It deepens our faith in God's sovereign plan. And we know that for those who love God, <coughs> all things work together for what? For good. For those who are called according to his purpose. <coughs> How many times have you been told that verse? Or you've heard that verse from a pulpit or something? And... You've not rolled your eyes, but you've had that sentiment. You're thinking, am I really, I hear you, but it really doesn't do much for me. I mean, let's be honest about it, right? Sometimes we get to the place where the truths of Scripture are not necessarily impactful at some times in our life. It's okay. You don't have to believe in gravity to stand on the ground. You don't have to understand it to fall off a cliff. 
And if I throw a ball at your face, you better duck or catch it. It deepens our faith in God's sovereign plan. The more we live, the longer we are reminded, the more intimate we are with the scriptures, the more applicable they are to our lives as we love others, not because we're supposed to, but because God has loved us in such a way that we are, we're just like, we have to, we're compelled to express that type of active, selfless love to others. And I want to talk more about that in the weeks to come, giving some guidelines on what love really looks like in service because it can be abused and it can be abusive. But this understanding assures believers that their lives, we are not, as God's children, a series of random events. We are not, you know, just marbles on the floor of a cosmic pattern. We're not. We're under the sovereign control of a father, a God who loves us and created us and knows us. So that no matter what comes our way, no matter how bad it is, we don't have to like it. We don't have to even have the capacity to thank him for all of the terror or the horror or the pain and suffering or whatever it might be. But we have been given the capacity to rest and what we can't see, which is the outcome of his promises. Because they haven't come yet. And so when we focus on these things, our belief is reinforced. That every trial, every uncertainty, everything has a divine purpose. And that encourages us to love God more and to grow deeper in our faith. The second thing is that understanding God's foreknowledge helps enhance our trust in God's wisdom and timing. Now, I know that seems redundant. That's the same thing. No, it's not. Because it's one thing to say, I trust God in all circumstances, but it's another thing, if you pray like me, I used to think I was a very patient person. But I'm not. Now, I'm not walking around actively impatient most of the time. But inside of me, I am impatient. I want things settled. I want things ordered. I want the socks paired and in the drawer. Or I just really throw them all in the trash. I don't want this limbo state of waiting for conclusion. I want to know that you like me and everything's good and that I've made everything right. We'll talk about it later. No, we'll talk about it now. Well, I've got to use the bathroom. Too bad. <laughs> you just got to hold it. You see? Impatient. But the more I'm reminded of God's foreknowledge, of his sovereignty, of his election, of his power, I can rest in his timing. I know that doesn't matter if it takes me five years to grow to place A where I want to be in this thing or that thing or the other. Nothing is instant. But we have been established in a Christian culture in our, in our world that makes us want it yesterday. Well, be honest about that with yourself, with others, and with the Lord. Don't pretend like I'm just all pious stoic here. No, we're not. Let's just be honest. Now, some of you are, and you're a model for us. We thank you for doing that. Don't stop. It's not me. Don't look at me as the example of patience. I promise you. I postured it for a very long time, and I'm just going to be honest about it. I want all of you to be joyful now before you leave this room. I want your problems fixed. And we're locking the doors until you get it. I mean, you know, you're not even going to eat chicken. No, keep the chicken outside. 
So God's foreknowledge helps us trust in his wisdom and his timing. The third thing is it gives us a sense of security and belonging. I don't know about you, but being rejected in any way is bad. I mean anything. You bump into somebody at the grocery store, oh, pardon me. Watch where you're going, you stupid idiot. Oh, God, who is this guy? I don't know, but he hates my guts. i got to go home and cry. I mean, is that needy? No, that's sensitive. And there's nothing wrong with being sensitive. If I wasn't sensitive, I'd be a terrible pastor. But if I'm overly sensitive, if I'm hyper-empathetic, I'll have a nervous breakdown again <laughs> and again and again and again and again. So there's growing. There's things. So how do we grow? Well, one of the primary ways that I have grown in this is to find my confidence in the sovereignty of God, not the sovereignty of God's purpose or the, or the calling of James, but in the sovereignty of God's purpose. So I can rest that knowing even when, and you've seen some of us elders make great mistakes standing right here in this pulpit <laughs> through the years, we've allowed things to take place in this church. Uh, not uh, Present elder, youngest elder, <laughs> newest elder excluded. He's like, no, what, none of me, I wasn't even here. He wasn't here. Um, but, you know, we've made great mistakes, and we've had to stand before you and say, forgive us, we've made great mistakes. We've made, we've made mistakes. We've had no wisdom in that. But at the end of the day, instead of beating ourselves up, we go, but the Lord had a purpose in it. And he did. Oh, my gosh, look what it did to set us free from so many shackles. Had that not happened, we'd still be in the infancy stage of bondage. <sighs> Somebody says, hey, next week, somebody's going to burn the building down. Ah, no, we're not going to open up, you know. So God doesn't give us that forethought. Hey, it's coming. Something's coming. No, don't give me that because I'll, I'll tie myself to a chair. Not going to happen. But we get a sense of security and belonging. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I had someone say to me, in reference to Romans chapter 8, middle of the week, <clears throat> and we were talking, and we said our goodbyes, and they said something, and that scripture came up, and they said, yeah, but we can take ourselves out of the love of God. Oh, now we've got to have a longer conversation that couldn't happen right there at the door. No, we can't. We can spit in the face of God, stomp our feet, kick dirt in his eyes, and it will not move him. We, are, we belong to him, not as a possession in the way that we look at possessions, but in a possession that cost him his life in righteousness and justice and in love. He's purchased us with his blood, and nothing can take that back. See why faith is a place of rest? Faith does produce action, but it produces action from a place of absolute rest. Being known by God before the creation of the world gives me a profound sense of security and belonging. That no matter what rejection I face in this life, he has not rejected me. Should he? Yes, in all real ways and practical wisdom. But because he chose to love me before me, he can't reject me. Because God doesn't change. Now that helps me in every relationship I have. The fourth thing, understanding God's foreknowledge, is that it gives us a purpose for life. 
It allows us to be aligned with the will of God. I can't tell you how many times I've had this question, you know, whether it be in person or on writing or online or on theology on call or whatever. And, you know, hey, how do I know God's will for my life? Well, it's very simple. Just read the New Testament and listen to it. The will of God for us is to be set apart for him, done in Christ, then set apart our attitudes, actions, minds, and affections in that way. Well, doing it, not very well, but okay. How do we flesh that out in a primal place, in a foundational place? We love one another as Christ loved us. We submit to one another as Christ submitted to the Father. You know, my tablet just lost my place here. Here we go. What's next? Well, the scripture tells us there in Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we align our lives after the will of the Father according to the scripture because we know that his purposes are good and true, that his love for us is sovereign. And what does that do? The fifth thing, it fosters an absolute attitude of humility. It, it is where my ego checks out. And I say that in the, in the pejorative sense. Their ego is not bad. It just means self. <laughs> okay. But where I get in the way of me and everything else around me and destroy things, understanding God's sovereignty gets me out of the way. It's like I tell the story of, of, of a very difficult time after the loss of a loved one where... I was very self-absorbed. That happens sometimes when you're suffering, right? And I remember opening the Bible and telling the Lord, I'm going to, what have I not read? No, I hadn't read Hebrews in a long, long time. And I'd thrown all sorts of stuff around and just had this little fit of, of, of pity. And I'm sitting in the floor of my study. And I open it up. And the scripture is illuminated by the Spirit. Many times, in many ways, God has spoken to us through our forefathers, but in these days, he speaks to us through his son. And the paraphrase there tells us about who Christ is. He's above all things. And he finished the work of redemption. He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having completed the work that he was sent to do. And the angels worship him, and the creation gives glory to his name. And here I am, focused, about, focused on me and my needs and my feelings. And it's okay to do that because until times like that, you'll never grow to be more settled in the sovereignty of God. So don't shy away from the pain. Don't think, well, I've got to be humble. I'm going to do it. That's arrogance. That's narcissistic. Not clinically, but in action and attitude. No, I'm not going to do anything. The only time we see that in the Bible Number one, as an example, is the Pharisee, I thank you, God, that I'm not like, you know, the, you've done all this. I, 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 and, and Lucifer, I will, I will, I will. James warns us, don't say I'm going to go do this and that, make a profit and have a, no. If the Lord wills, I will do this. So when we get a good grasp and a constant reminder of God's foreknowledge, of God's sovereignty, of God's love in this way, it really grows humility in us. For consider your calling, beloved. 
We heard this this morning. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And the final thing that I think we need to really grasp here as we move into the rest of this teaching is that understanding God's foreknowledge and sovereignty gives us assurance of salvation and our eternal hope. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He doesn't really get in to all the (coughs) typical nuts and bolts until chapter 2. And he says, so put away the dishes, the clothes, the socks. Put away malice, put away all deceit, put away hypocrisy, put away envy, put away slander. Like eensy-teensy newborn babies long for pure spiritual milk. I can't wait to preach that. That's two weeks, by the way, what I just said. That's, two, that's five hours in my brain, but that's going to have to be like 120 minutes. Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So see, our hope is in the tasting of the sovereignty of God. Our hope is in the pleasure of that, of that aroma. It always reminds me of John 11 and 12. It always reminds me of when Jesus hears that Nicodemus has died. I mean, Lazarus has died. Sorry about that. Nicodemus, he does die, but not in the text. It reminds me of that time where we see him in the house. And that very expensive annual, I mean, the cost of an annual salary oil is poured all over him. And the scripture says the aroma filled And I just, I don't know, as a poet, I can sit on that for weeks. It wouldn't be very beneficial for you, but it's very beneficial for me. Our eternal hope, blessed be God and Father, verse 3 and 5 of chapter 1 of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And he talks about you. So I believe that we need to have these things, these understandings, because it is hard sometimes because we're not in the practice of making application. And I have not done a very good job through the years of really parsing out a deeper application in a clear way. I might say it or toss it out there, spray it out or whatever, but I want you to hear it a little bit more directly. And it's a lot harder. It's a lot more work (laughs) to make sure that what we're saying is contextual and that you can find it and that you can come to those same conclusions because if you can't, you can't test me in it, right? I've said this a lot. Don't ever take my word for it. But don't refute me by going and Google searching an alternate view. Read it for yourself. And then we'll talk about it. Part two. In the sanctification of the Spirit. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. And And I approached all of this last week. But in this week and next week and the week after, we're going to unpack each of these one and two at a time.
in the sanctification of the Spirit. The biblical understanding of sanctification, this is going to be a very, very long section here. Because I want to go to the Old Testament, I want to go to the New Testament, I want to establish it. You heard me say last week that we have historically, in the theological circles of history, in the annals of doctrinal pursuits and clarity, we have men and women and children, young people, old people, rich people, poor people, who have came, come to understand the application of sanctification and what it is and how the Bible teaches it. And in the time that they came to this understanding, it was necessary because there were debates and conversations. All right, right now in our country, right now in our culture, right now in this church, we're not having great debates over what's really being said by the Bible. Primarily because we don't live in a day and age where we don't live in a society where the scripture is even <laughs> used, even by Christians. I mean, it's just not, I was talking about biblical worldview last, we have no idea the biblical worldview of Geneva 500 years ago. And for almost being an, a prisoner, John Calvin was required twice a day, seven days a week, to teach publicly the Bible. That's why he wrote so much, because he's like me. He can't, he's got he's to work through all these things. I'm dumb, but he wasn't. But what they were going through in the 17th century is nothing at all to what we're going through. Nothing. So what they worked out and what they parsed out is extremely interesting and can be extremely beneficial for us as we want to see what other people have thought. But if we use those generations to establish our understanding of what God's Word is saying today, we are not learning. You see what I mean? We're just repurposing. Now, it takes a lot of filtration. It takes a lot of intention. So, for the sake of clarity, I think every generation in every church ought to work through things. It's okay to borrow and to consider. But I think we need to start with the Word of God and we need to end with the Word of God together, collectively. And right now, there's not really a debate on sanctification. We've just open mouth, open mind, accepted it for what it is. And if you go to seminary and you're working on a doctorate, in something or a master of divinity or a master of theology or whatever it might be or you go to a Bible college or you go to a Sunday school class someone else has already written down what someone else has already read that someone else had already written down and they say this is what it means and they're like okay sounds good to me and we just take it doesn't mean that we're lost or unregenerate it just means we're not thinking through and we just accept it can't tell you how many times I've heard other people throughout my life teach my sermons because they are very personal. My stories are real life things that I have seen, heard, and participated in. And when I hear someone else tell the story of their uncle who had the same name as my uncle in the pond in the same way that I had and the fish thing that happened exactly like it was, and then I tell it some years later... Or they tell, I, said, I tell at a conference and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, you stole that story from my pastor. I did, and come to find out I ministered with this guy years before. <laughs> so yeah, I tell that story. So you need to tell it as a story, not your story. Well, the point I'm making is, is that that seems to be what 
preaching and teaching is all about. Let me just have something to say. It's been said. Whoo! That's not the point. We are walking to grow in our understanding together, to grow intimately, to grow as a people. And so if we need to understand what it means to be set apart for Christ, to be consecrated, to be holy, to be sanctified, let's go to the Word of God in its context and ask ourselves what it really means. Don't just accept the idea that sanctification is twofold, positional and progressive, because that's not true. Now that's a really interesting way of doing it, and I think by and large it's accurate but what we then decided is we just take it this way and some people will say well I am becoming more like Jesus every day no you're not not in a real sense maybe in some senses maybe uh, maybe your attitude is changing but it's never gonna be like Christ's I might be like Christ this morning and like Peter's this afternoon or might be like mine. Oh, heaven help you. You're never going to get into heaven now. Or maybe like the devil. My oldest daughter, when she was six, told me I was the devil. With gritted teeth. And I said, well, you're the daughter of the devil. <laughs> that was my response and all of my pastoral and fatherly wisdom. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. But what does it mean? Sanctification. I mean, we get the Old Testament re references, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. I am the Lord who sets you apart, who sanctifies you. Sanctification is God's act and is not a human effort in its real sense. New Testament clarifies that by saying God chose you, 2 Thessalonians 2, I read these last week, as first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Set them apart in your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prayed for his disciples, showing sanctification as a divine act rooted in the truth of God. So now let's think about this. What does that mean for us? What does it mean to be sanctified by the Spirit? Well, first we understand that this is something the Spirit has done, right? The Bible doesn't say, and the Spirit offers the ability for sanctification. The Bible doesn't say the Spirit, you know, hopes that you'll be sanctified. The Scripture says that he who began a good work in me is faithful to complete it. What is that good work? Redemption. What happens at the end of this life is glorification. What is that? A new creation. My ontological essence, who I am, my mind, my conscience will be cleansed and the body that I have, the body that you have as believers will be sinless. Completely sinless, just like Jesus. We'd be glorified. We share in that. And we ebb and flow. We mature and fail. We grow and <laughs> digress in our lives. The older we get, it seems like it gets a little easier. We just get tired of trying. That's what it is. We're like, I give up. I don't care anymore. I don't have an opinion anymore. What do you think? I don't care. Yes, that sounds good. <laughs> We just don't want to fight with ourselves or with others. And so it's not like we're becoming more righteous. The sanctification needs to be first understood that it is being set apart for God's purpose. We need to realize that it is, it is the centerpiece of our identity in Christ. Who am I? You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You are set apart in Christ. You are righteous in Christ. You are holy 
before your Father in Christ. And God's not being tricked. He knows us, but He has declared us completely righteous, completely set apart for Himself. And nothing, listen, nothing can change that. No matter how we live, no matter what we think, no matter how far off the rails we go, no matter, thank God for the parable of the prodigal son. Thank God for the life of Peter, for the ministry of Peter during the days of Jesus. Thank God for David and all the record of his nonsense. Thank God for Moses, who couldn't speak well, who had to get Aaron. God gives him a stick to go down there and tell a king to step off. Thank God for these models of failures. Thank God for Paul, who found his little murderer and acted on it. We are set apart for God's purpose. Paul tells Corinthians to the church, to those sanctified in Christ, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Our identity is that we are set apart. Our identity is that in us being set apart, we reflect the holiness, the righteousness of Christ. Paul writes to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 10, and by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Because of that, we have a different relationship with the world. A much different relationship with the world. We hear the, we hear the text a lot, right? Be in the world, but not of it. And what we've done in Christian circles historically is we've created the list of what it means to not be of the world. And we've written books about it, and we've preached sermons about it, and we've made people feel shame about it. And then when we aren't doing these things or we're accomplishing the antithesis that is not of the world, we feel pretty good about it. And then we, then we act like we're hum humble. We go, oh, I'm just so thankful. It's not for the Lord. It wouldn't be me. I'm like, it's not you anyway. Unbelieving people, lost people, people devoid of the spirit of grace are able to walk in a manner worthy to be matched with Christian living all over the world. And I don't want to give examples because, quite honestly, I think it's rude to give examples. I didn't, didn't understand that until somebody recently said, Hey, you know, we've been friends for a while. And we've been talking about things. And you sort of like shot me in the head when you made fun of my faith. I wasn't making fun of it. But I use it as an example. You see, you've got to be careful. There's nothing funny about unbelief. You have a different relationship with the world. I've given them your word, Jesus says in John 17. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. But even in the context of our Christian world, what happens? We have a lot of misconceptions, and we need to have some clarifications about sanctification. Let me quickly remind us of some of the things we talked about there, and then I'm going to expand the Old and New Testament, and then we'll be done for the day. 
Clarifying the nature of sanctification, some of the misconceptions are is that sanctification is a gradual, ongoing process of becoming more righteous. Now, the scripture would teach us, and I'm going to repeat myself today a couple of more times, but the scripture would teach us, just like Peter's going to teach us, that we ought to set ourselves apart in our minds and our hands. I mean, I am holy before the Father completely, fully, ever, forever, right now because of Christ. His righteousness has been credited to me on the account of justice. But if I get through preaching today and, you know, you get in my way and I just slap you to the floor, get out of my way, man, I'm trying to get through. I mean, that's not necessarily Christ-like, nor is it loving. It's not even good humanism. <laughs> it's terrible. I mean, humanism says, hey, let's respect each other. So you could say to me, you know, you need to set apart your attitude like you are already set apart in Christ. You need to work on that, brother. Because you keep slapping us, we're going to have a problem. We'll take you out the back and slap back. You see? But we can't conflate this idea that we're becoming more righteous just because we do our duty, just because we're doing what is good and prudent. Because unbelievers feed their children. Remember? They don't give them a snake or a rock when they ask for bread. And if we love the Lord, then we should love each other and... All of the law is to show us our guilt before the Father, and that there's only one way of not being guilty, and that's if someone fulfills the law perfectly in true righteousness and takes the place of the sinner in their guilt, Jesus Christ. That's why it's called the good report, the God spell, the God speak. God has said. So sanctification is really a position Though we could argue that there's a sanctifying reality in growing and maturing, because the words don't need to be interchanged, we need to communicate it clearer. So we like to say mature or grow. It's always the joke when we potty train our children. Well, they won't graduate high school without doing it. <laughs> or tying their shoes. They won't go off on their first job without knowing how to talk. But that's not always true. You know? It's just a joke. But we do mature. We grow. We learn things. We learn to be more intelligent. We learn to be more emotionally in touch. We learn all sorts of things. We learn what is good and prudent, wise and profitable when it comes to life and how we speak and how we think and how we respond. But in Christian life, especially in America, this is anecdotal, but I mean, I've been around I'd love to hear alternate stories. We seem to do better at just getting the don't do's and feeling confident enough, well, we're growing up now. My children don't move, they don't breathe. They only eat when I force it down there. They don't like it, they can just starve. I mean, you know, and you're thinking that that's a joke, but I mean, there's some sentiment there. Especially you moms who have raised children at home alone and fed them and they want to turn their nose up at it. You really want to show them what they could be eating, right? It's not a process. It's not a process. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now that seems those who are also being set apart. Who? those who will come to faith, those who are set apart now. We are still being set apart by the Father, by the Spirit, 
awaiting that day of redemption, that day of glory, that day of life. You might think, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is if we don't understand the completeness of sanctification, then we're misunderstanding the completeness of sovereignty. Or we're trying to parse out the, the you know, dare I say, I'll just say the philosophical, the Western philosophy of man's responsibility. And man means human being, not male. Okay? We don't need to parse that out. We need to see what the Bible says. And the implications of misunderstanding that is that we can sometimes do believe that we've achieved a state of holiness through personal effort in some aspect of our life, but partial perfection in one area or complete perfection in one thing is still complete failure in everything else. The Word says if you miss one little teensy thing of the law, you have been found guilty of all of it. If you get upset inside your spirit and go, then you're a murderer and you're a blasphemer and you're an idolater because you've broken righteousness. You see? So we can never look at ourselves in such a way of going, hey, be like me, mature. No, be like me, submissive and humble to the promises of God and setting me apart in Jesus Christ. Those things will transform our mind as we grow. And even when we're doing things rightly, thank goodness for that, we should be, and not doing all this other stuff, we can still internally be extremely mis uh, confused about where we really stand. That's why so many missionaries have so many pictures on their stinking Facebook pages. Look at me and us and us doing all these things. Well, what about, no, Mickey Mouse is a missionary. You know, uh, I mean, why do we do that? I mean, share your life. Do what you want to do. But be careful. A friend of mine that used to do some Middle Eastern stuff, some church planning there. Extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Extremely underground. Nobody could, and I'll never forget one of the missionary support groups that were paying his way. Wanted to pull his funding because he wouldn't let them write an article in their national magazine. You know what he told them? Keep your stinking money. If you put my face in that magazine, hundreds of people are going to die. You stupid idiot. Oh, you're just not even a man of God. Oh. And I'm like, leave. So he left that organization. Thank God. You know? Because for the people who ran it, we got to be seen doing these things. What does the Bible say? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do what is in private. Pray in private. Not on the street corner. Not on Facebook. But it's the world we live in. Some of the godliest people, you don't even know about them. <laughs> and that's tough because, good gracious, if you like validation... And you want to be accepted. There's no better way of doing it than just show people that you're doing what they like. It's called politics. Paul has something to say about that to the Galatians in chapter 3. He says, why, are you foolish? Why are you, why are you being so... Having begun by the Spirit, I said this last week, are you going to now be perfected by the flesh? 
We're not perfected by the flesh. We're perfected by the flesh of Jesus Christ that was crucified for us. And that's it. So maturing and growing, let's quit conflating it with being holy or sanctified. Let's expand this. What's the Old Testament, the New Testament have to say? I can go through this fairly quickly. There's a bunch of things. Let's see the Old Testament. I I pick six. I'll, I'll list them out very quick. Sanctification of the Sabbath. The setting apart of the holy day in Genesis chapter 2. So God blessed the seventh day. That's what the word Sabbath means. Seven. Seventh day and made it holy. And as he set it apart for himself. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now we know, and if you don't have you heard teaching on this, you can go look at that little mini-series of Genesis 1 through 3 that I did year before last. I don't know, sometime. Maybe it was 2020. And you'll see that the whole creation account is nothing but a tiny little commercial about redemption. It's not to tell us the biology and the science and everything else. That's not the point of it. It's not there. It's to tell us what? It's to tell us that God, out of nothing, can create everything. And out of darkness can create light and separate it and prepare a place for people to live organically and biologically. So if he can do that, he can prepare a place for you to live spiritually with him in a temple. (laughs) Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That's the point. That's the point of it. So we see sanctification of the Sabbath. That introduces the concept of being separate, being holy, being set apart for special purposes. The whole nothing was set apart for God to have everything created. Sanctification of the priest. We see the priesthood in Exodus. <coughs> The scripture says, verse 29, uh, verse 44, chapter 29 of Exodus. Uh, actually, it's probably 40 verses there, but the essence is this. This is what you shall do to them, consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. These are the Levites. And I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will set them apart. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. This is my role. This is your role. I'm setting you apart. This is what you are to do. So all these elaborate rituals for consecrating Aaron and his sons highlight the importance of what it means to be set apart in Christ completely and forever. It was always worthless. It pointed to that which was worth, that had value, worthy. Sanctification of the firstborn, Exodus 13. Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whomever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast is mine. Give it to me. Remember Jesus Consecration in the temple. Remember John? Consecration in the temple. You tell the world, this child is not mine, it belongs to the Lord. I give this child over to you in the service. Why is that? Because it's a picture of God giving his son to set apart his people for his purposes. And what is that purpose? To see him for who he is in his majesty and his love, and his power. Sanctification of the temple. I won't get into all those things. But the Lord hears the prayers of his people. God's desire. The temple is a picture of God's desire. And I say that with emphasis. God's desire to be present with his people physically. Like in the garden. It's a temple. The garden of Eden. And then We rebel, and then that temple is closed off. The veil is closed off. The Holy of Holies, where God meets man, is gone. And the only way 
to not die is something else to die to cover up the guilt, the nakedness, the shame. And Jesus is the one who tears down that fail of that wall of hostility. Being set apart. Jesus was set apart through obedience. We see in the Old Testament many times, I want you to be set apart by doing these things. But it's not, as we've seen already now in these other four or five things, it's never righteousness. It's never true purity. It's a picture of what is true purity. So our actions and our obedience, as we'll see next week, are pictures of purity because we understand the love of God in causing us to be sanctified forever in Christ. And then the scripture calls us. I, I, I should take the next 25 to 30 minutes and just read Isaiah chapter 6. I'll do it next week. It, don't, it won't take 25 minutes, but I'd love to expound on it. We see that prophetic call to, to being sanctified, to being set apart. We see in the, in the context and the precepts of all of this worship and stuff. And we see that in the Bible there, Isaiah says, Lord, send me. And what God does in the imagery of Isaiah speaking to him is he consecrates Isaiah in the same manner that the pagans consecrated their idols. Touching his lips with the coal. Setting him up in the sacrifice and all these things. That he would speak, he would be purified, he would speak my words. I'd love to go through those pictures. But Isaiah was set apart for prophetic ministry. And this illustrates the necessity of being cleansed and set apart for the service of the Lord, especially in the roles of spiritual oversight and service of the Word. And that's, I don't like that. Because the world, over the last two and a half decades, the world of Christianity has taught me to be something that the Bible has not asked me to be. And probably you too. And called it sanctification. New Testament, same stuff. We see sanctification. I've already said Hebrews 10. 10, being sanctified through Christ. Once and for all through his death. As we see here, and as we've been talking for the last 15, 20 minutes, that sanctification is a definitive act by the Holy Spirit of God. As such were some of you, Paul says to the Corinthians, but you were washed, as such were some of you, lost, blinded, living in darkness. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then there is a sense in which we are to set apart our lives, our mouths, our attitudes. We're to say, okay, I want to set apart this job. I want to set apart, like, I mean, if you go buy 10 pounds of chicken, you're not going to, like, cook all that chicken for the same meal maybe unless you're just really hungry you might say I'm going to do chicken and this and chicken and that chicken. you're going to set these things apart for different recipes beloved our lives are just like that sometimes we set different aspects of our lives apart for different things but everything we are to set apart for the sake of God's glory when it comes to community Peter will say here that we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see Paul saying the same thing to the Colossians, so this is not just because they're Jewish. 
So this collective understanding of sanctification as a church is vital to our growing, to our applying God's sovereignty, as I talked about in the, very intro, in the introduction of the sermon, and to having the transformative work of God the Holy Spirit through the Word together. I hate to use old cliches, but you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Likewise, a community is only as strong as its weakest person, except in the gospel. Because the weakest person in the chain of righteousness is Jesus Christ, who is also the cornerstone that can't be shaken. <laughs> now that's thinking about nothing and everything at the same time. So what do we do in the last few seconds of our time together? How do we apply this? I want to remind you of a couple of things. First thing is I want you to understand the interplay of foreknowledge and sanctification, the intersectionality. I've already taught it, but I want you to see it. Is that God's sovereignty and his foreknowledge, his electing love, is absolutely 100% tethered to our righteousness and to his decree to say that we are set apart, that we are holy before him. In other words, God's sovereign election, God's love, establishes our identity before him. And nothing that we are practically changes that. Nothing that we are personally changes that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Listen, beloved, these aren't to be obstacles. They're to be areas of freedom for us as, as believers. Paul even says it in Galatians chapter 1. I mean, look at his whole life. He lost in darkness. In Galatians, he said, God set me apart before I was born for this. Makes me feel real small when I, when I gnaw at the regret that I have inside of me. Things I didn't do and didn't accomplish. Things that I could have done and could have accomplished. I need to be reminded of that. David, the same way. Peter, I've already mentioned him the same way. Just reminding us, we have these examples in the Bible that show us that God had purposed these things and that nothing can change what God has established. The idea of living in this contemporary world, these things will help us make better decisions. These things and this understanding of, of, of God's work and purposes and power and our holiness before him will help us in our ethics and our morals. It will help us in our relationships with the world around. It will help us in our politics. It will help us in our jobs. It will certainly guide us as parents and as lovers and as neighbors. Won't it? It should. The word vocation means divine call. Did you know that? So whether you're a mailman or a lawyer or nothing because you just don't know what you want to do yet it's okay do it as under the Lord it is a vocation as under the Lord God has a purpose for us God has a purpose for us before we were born and this will influence our choices this will influence our attitude and beloved all of this comes with one guarantee. Well, a lot of guarantees, the sovereignty of God and his purposes, but all of this comes with one other guarantee. You want to know what it is? Absolute pain and suffering. 
There you go. This is the close of the sermon. It's going to stink sometimes. You've heard it seven or eight times already, but it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be honest about where we are. You will not be condemned in this spiritual family because you're human and you're hurting. I don't care why you're hurting. I don't care if you dug a hole, set yourself on fire, threw yourself in it, and then covered yourself with gasoline. What's going on? You're not going to be condemned. Mickey Mouse will be there. That's the voice. I don't know why I did a Mickey Mouse voice. You're not going to be condemned. You're going to be loved through it. You're not going to be, I told you, shame, shame, shame. No, there's no room for that. Now, we might do that sometimes, and then we can receive, please don't do that. And then we'll stop. What does that do for us? It equips us for the work of the ministry, which is the whole reason we're sitting here. First, to ourselves, to our homes, and to one another, then the neighbors around us. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And it equips us then to empower us in our witness. It empowers us in our witness. This theological understanding equips us in our, when we face skepticism, when we face terror, when we face adversity, when we face rejection. And it provides a foundation of our faith in such a way <coughs> that we're able to stand firm and rest deeply rooted in the plan of God for our lives. So when I know that I'm holy... And I know that I'm not. I trust in what God has said about me. And that affects how I live in the world. That affects what I want. But beloved, we can't do it alone. We can't do it individually and expect it to be empowering. We have to do it together. That's why we come together. That's why we sing together. That's why we pray together. That's why we have the word of God together. That's why we take the Lord's table together to be reminded of these things that we may live in such a way that we rest in the promises of God's love for us because not only has he promised it, he has proven it. And he has purposed it that we would live as a people. Right now. Right now. In a manner worthy of the calling that we've been given. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gospel of grace. I thank you, Lord, for Peter's letter and that it's such an amazing truth, one after the other, to give us hope, to help us to, to walk and to live with joy. Lord, help us to live in an authentic way, to find our identity in Jesus, to find our identity in your love, and, Lord, in doing so, to help us see how we could love each other. Father, I pray for each one of us. I pray for those who haven't been with us for a while, who have been sick and hospitalized, and uh, though we might not even have known we've been praying. Father, I pray for those who are just troubled in their spirit, who are downtrodden, those who feel intimidated about being around others. Lord, those who are struggling to find out who they really are. those, Lord, who are not honest about what they're going through. There's no guilt in any of it, Father. We are where we are. We need to be reminded of whose we are. So, Lord, in, in your power and by your Spirit this very moment as we pray these things and as we pray for them, Lord, work powerfully in our inner being, in our mind, in our soul, in our spirit to give us that peace to give us that rest. 
And we thank you that we can pray these things to you and that you hear us, despite what we thought or said before we got here, despite what we're thinking we're going to just do in an ugly way or sinful or with an attitude when we leave here. Lord, you hear our prayers. So help us to pray for each other because oftentimes, Lord, we're not able to pray for ourselves. And we pray all these things in Christ, by his name, by the authority, by his power, by his rule, and by his love. Amen. Let's take the table, beloved.